Good morning, Calvary Chapel. Um, we're going to be returning to our study in the Gospel of John today, um, but as it is the, the first sermon of 2021, uh, we'll also just be aware of where we are in the calendar, um, the new year, and, and the, be aware of the state that we find ourselves in, leaving a year behind, uh, and the, the tendencies that we have to look back and to look forward. And in the, in the passage we come to in John chapter 14, what we see is that Jesus gives us ample reason to look forward to things. He, he gives us something to hope for, to look forward to. Uh, and so I'm going to read this passage and, and we'll pray for our time. And I'd also ask you to, um, to remember the York family in your prayers. Uh, I'm not actually dressed up for you right now. Um, but I'm filming this on, on Wednesday and in, in a couple hours there's... Um, going to be the, the funeral for our, our dear friend Pauline. And also remember um, Gene Cassaro and his family in your prayers as well, as uh, Ginger is having a much better worship service than you are this morning. Uh, and I'm sure she's having a, a great time with her Lord and Savior. But I'm going to read John chapter 14, verse 1 through 6, and pray. And if you'd like to read along, uh, that's fine, or just listen to me read, that's fine also. Uh, but do join me in prayer as we pray for our time in, in, uh, in the Word. So John 14, verse 1, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lord God, I, I ask that this, this sermon would uh, be, be preached in service to you. I pray that this word, um, uh, the word of scripture that was just read, would sink deep into our hearts. Uh, and I pray, God, that now as we're, we're in the beginning of, of the first month of the year uh, and looking forward to what you have in store for us, God, that our hearts would be set on your faithfulness that extends to all generations, and also that our hearts would be filled with the anticipation of what comes after the end of all generations. We look forward to heaven and pray that you would whet our appetites uh, for the eternal, for heaven, for where you are, for your Father's house, for being with you. Uh, be with us now, be in our presence, teaching us, leading us, showing us yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, we love new things, you know, don't we? I think all of us do. We love to celebrate the, the new year, and it seems that people are always looking for the next new thing. Um, this is uh, probably especially true, maybe in, in, uh, in the realm of technology. You know, you buy uh, a computer or something and, and it's obsolete like before you get home and you need to get a new one just to keep, you know, other programs running nicely. Uh, but it's, it's actually scientifically proven that novelty, new things, excite the brain in some pretty remarkable ways. More often than not, this, this lust for the new, um, it actually affects us in negative ways. Uh, this is why addictions are a downward spiral. We want the new pleasure because there's the, you know, the law of diminishing returns. The last pleasure is already old and worn out and we need something better and new uh, to get the same hit. 
you know, prior to much of that scientific research, Shakespeare said in one of his plays, all with one consent praise newborn gods. Uh, and, and this is his take on the John Calvin thing about the heart of man being a factory of idols. We just crank out new things to idolize. Um, and there's, a, there's this never-ending conveyor belt feeding ourselves false gods. And, and we like new things. Um, and, and I think John Calvin and Shakespeare agreed on, on the same thing. You know, we're fickle because we, we will so often trade one loyalty for a fresh one at the drop of a hat. But even before Shakespeare or, or Calvin, Sol Solomon went on a hard search for the new and the fulfilling and wrote about it in, uh, in Ecclesiastes, which isn't usually thought of as a real feel-good story. And he says, All things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. That's Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8. When he was in a little bit better mood, but thinking about the same things, when he wrote Proverbs 27, 20, it says the same truth. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. We have to see something new. We have to have something new. We like new things. And, and there's never a shortage of new things, which means that yesterday's new things are always getting old. And now there's this, you know, kind of iconic image of a kid on Christmas Day surrounded by wrapping paper asking what's next. You know, and he got to the last present and he's like, well, where's the next one? You know, and the, the, the stuff that was opened half an hour before, that's already dull and dated. And we can be like that if we seek after the novelties of this world. But the desire for the new is not entirely out of place. Um, and I'm not just being critical, saying just be happy with old broken things. Okay, no, God has matched our souls for perfection and heaven, where mercies are new every morning. That's part of our relationship with Him, is this continual celebration of newness. And, you know, where the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. That's unending pleasures that don't grow old, that don't, um, where, where moth does not destroy and thief does not break in and steal. You know, we want newness, and and that by itself is not so terrible, but the new things that this world has to offer and that our heart develops appetites for are usually just counterfeits of the newness that we have in Christ. See, the desire for new is not wrong, but like the rest of our desires, emotions, and intellect, it is tinged with sin because of the fall. Um, you know, I've talked about this before, where Buddhism makes the mistake of saying that desires are wrong in, in and of themselves, some branches of Buddhism, that, that strong desires need to be suppressed, that the problem is that we want things. Uh, Christianity teaches that our desires aren't strong enough, that our desires are misplaced, but if aligned with the desires of Christ, then they are anything but too strong. We should want God more. We should want heaven more. We should want holiness more. Our desire for novelty is, is off its bearing, but it's not wrong at its core. It has been redeemed by our Savior who saves the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus has a better newness for us, and we should follow hard after him in order to obtain it. And Charles Spurgeon, he said this um, about our, our misdirected desire for novelty. He says, We ought not, as men in Christ Jesus, be carried away by a childish love of novelty, for we worship a God who is ever the same, and of whose years there is no end. But then he says this, he says, The old, old gospel 
is the newest thing in the world. In its very essence, it is forever good news. In the things of God, the old is ever new. And if any man brings forward that which seems to be new doctrine and new truth, it is soon perceived that the new dogma is only worn out heresy, dexterously repaired, and the discovery in theology is the digging up of a carcass of error, which had better have been left to rot and oblivion. Don't you love Spurgeon? He's great. In the great matter of truth and godliness, we may safely say there is nothing new under the sun. Now, we, we see a lot of angles here in this quote. We see in this quote that the only real new things worth seeking after are those things that have, have their origin in Christ, that are from of old, from of everlasting. And this is great news for us because there is enough newness in Jesus to go around every year, year after year. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 5 is a fantastic verse for the first week of January. It's Jesus speaking. Uh, well, it's John describing Jesus, and then Jesus speaks. He says, And he sat upon the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. Now, in, in John 14, we see Jesus not sitting on a throne, but reclining at table at what is called the Last Supper. It's the last, the last meal he would eat before going to the cross, before suffering in his passion. And in John 14, Jesus directs our hearts, the hearts of his disciples, towards that kind of newness that Revelation speaks of. He tends to the troubled hearts of the disciples, and he lifts their gaze towards mansions that would be prepared in a place handcrafted by the Creator for them to enter into. He addresses a group of people who are keenly aware of an old wearing out world and says, but I'm going and I'm building and I'm working and I am the one who makes all things new. And he says, I'm preparing a place for you. Preparing a place is making something new of this new world. You know, Revelation talks about the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, verse 4, the verse right before the one that I just read, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The former things, that's the old stuff, the worn out old years, full of decay, full of sadness. And he says, former things, the old stuff, has passed away. And then... In verse 5 of Revelation 21, he says, Behold, I make all things new. Now this first verse in John 14. Uh, this, this may hit home for you. There may be application here for your current situation, and maybe not. But it certainly was a word fitly spoken for the disciples. And if it doesn't match your current outlook, give it a week or so, a month or a few hours, and it will hit home. Because let not your hearts be troubled is written to the human race. Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Sparks go up from a fire, it's just the natural way things work, and it's the natural, simple truth that our lives are full of sorrow. Trouble. It's, it's the natural world, the normal world, the fallen world, and the disciples have come to understand not only that Jesus was leaving, but that they may be wondering if it's their fault. Remember, Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and they went around the table saying, is it, is it me? Maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe he's leaving because of me. Uh, Peter had said, it, it couldn't be him. And then Jesus told Peter, you will deny me three times. And in the end, when the shepherd is struck, all the sheep were scattered. None of them stayed with him. They're easily spooked. They're nervous. They're uneasy. They've received the bad news that Jesus is leaving them. They are troubled. And so in verse 1, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. His antidote for the troubled hearts around him is faith. Now, when they were on the Sea of Galilee, caught in a storm with Jesus asleep on the boat, in the boat, um, they wake him up, and they, in that storm, they have the, the audacity to ask Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They call the care of Jesus, do you even care, into question. And, and after he speaks to the storm, peace, be still, he turns to, to the disciples and says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? They were troubled, afraid, and Jesus identifies that as the result of a faith problem. And with the question the disciples asked in the boat, we see that's exactly what it was. They were questioning Jesus' care for them. And the disciples in the upper room, faced with an uncertain future, after hearing Jesus say he's going away, could they have been asking the same question, perhaps? Well, do you even care? You're leaving us behind? Will you care for us? Can you care for us after you leave? In this uncertainty, uncertainty that is ahead of us, are you going to be there? And Jesus says to their troubled hearts, believe in God. Believe in me. Now in John, we have seen that belief and faith is a, is a great theme of the book. These things are written that you may believe. And we have also seen that believing is a kind of spiritual looking. It is the gaze of a soul on the saving, upon a saving God. And Jesus is telling the disciples now, as they think about the future, to keep their eyes on him. Now we sing the song, God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. And those two things, that's a, that's a couplet. That's a pair. We look to God to avoid being overwhelmed. And then we pray, give me vision. And then the better request, I think, in the hymn, be thou my vision. This is the medicine for our sick and troubled hearts. The gaze of the soul upon its Savior. The belief that calms. And then Jesus tells them why he's going away. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, go where I am, there you may be also. What Jesus says is, yes, I care. That's actually why I'm going. I'm going to, to do something new. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When he talks about his father's house, he's talking about heaven, of course. And, uh, but notice that he, he's not wondering about heaven. He's describing something that he knows about, that he's an authority on. And I think it's pretty common for a person who is facing their own mortality, uh, that, that knows they're heading in to, out of life and into death. Uh, they, they know their end has come. It, it's normal for that kind of person to, to turn their thoughts towards eternity and wonder, what's next? What's it going to be like? I wonder if there's ice cream. Or for the person who has a more mature faith, I wonder how much ice cream there will be, which I think is a better question. Uh, Plato, he writes about, Plato writes about the death of Socrates. And after Socrates is condemned to death, he drinks the hemlock, the poison, and he's walking around to get the poison to, to work. And then he talks with his friends, and he wonders, he speculates, he asks questions about what might come next. But he doesn't know. What a contrast, then, to this Savior, who speaks about the things that he knows. He's, he's not wondering about heaven. 
He's describing his home and he's telling about a place where he's been, the place that he came from. And he says, in my father's house are many mansions. Now the word for mansions there uh, really just means dwelling place. It means a home. There are many homes in heaven. The disciples have asked Jesus, where are you going and why can't we follow you? Because Jesus has said, you can't come with me. Where I'm going, you can't follow. And so they're saying, why? What, where are you going? Why are you going? Why can't we come? And he's, telling, he's saying, hey, I'm going back home. I'm going to my father's house. But in my father's house, there's room enough for all of you to have a home. There's room enough for all of you. And he's telling them that he's going to prepare a place for them. Now, we can cling to this promise as Jesus' disciples. That he is also preparing a place for us. He is making us a home in heaven. Now, interestingly enough, this word for mansions or dwelling places shows up only one other time in the New Testament. And it's later in the same chapter, in John chapter 14. If you glance down at John chapter 14, verse 23, uh, you read, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus comes to a broken world, and as the Christmas carol says, the weary world rejoices. But in this upper room moment, everyone is still very much aware of the world's weariness. So Jesus says, I'm not, I'm, I'm, he says, I'm going to make something new, something better than this. He's talking about heaven. That, that would be, and, and that would be enough if he was just describing where he's going, heaven, and we would get an idea. But he's actually says that he's going to go and improve on heaven for the sakes of these disciples. He's going to prepare a place for them in heaven where there are already many mansions. Jesus is saying it gets better. It's so much better. I've heard it you know, kind of speculated here, uh, people just wondering about heaven again because we haven't been there like Jesus has been. And, and you know, we're, we're talking about the, the dwelling place of God who created the heavens and the earth in six days. And then Jesus left to, to make a new heaven and a new earth. And evidently he's not done yet. It's going to be amazingly glorious. If it took six days to make this, and a couple thousand years to make that, purely speculative, I know, time, space, I don't know how all that works. But Jesus says it gets better, so much better. Revelation speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, and Jesus speaks those words, Behold, I make all things new. Behold is look. And in John 14, 1, he says, Believe in me, which is a kind of looking. And then he introduces this idea of newness and saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But wait, there's more. In John 14, 23, Jesus doubles down on a statement from earlier in his ministry. The kingdom of heaven is among you. It's both future and present in time. Distant and present in space. Jesus says both that he is going to prepare a place for us, but also that God will come and make his place with us in the meantime. This is the ministry of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is with us now and will be with us then. This is how Paul could so confidently say to live as Christ to die as gain. He is here and he is there. He's with us now and will be with him forever. The Son of God has been made flesh to dwell, abide, make his home with us. And that is 
a new thing that the angels couldn't even understand. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. This is the new thing that God did, and it's the new thing that he is still doing, making his home with us. And yes, we get to look forward to the making of all things new, and we look forward to a real heaven, a real face-to-face -face meeting with God himself. But until then, he is still doing his creative work in us, making his home with us. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he doesn't ask the disciples for anything except their faith. Yeah, but, but we do sing, we sing in, a, in joy to the world, let every heart prepare him room. He's going to prepare a place for you in heaven. But until he calls you home, until then, we prepare a place for him in our hearts. And as Jesus writes to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3.20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This dual truth of God creating for us a dwelling place and also creating us to be dwelling places this is a beautiful truth and it's true of both you individually and of the church collectively. Paul says that your body, your individual body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But he also writes that God is building us up together as living stones into a holy dwelling place for God in the Spirit. God dwelling with us it is the new thing that the weary world longs for. Well, Christmas, the Nativity, the baby in the manger, that was a one-time thing in history that we remember every year at Christmas, but the creation of God... Uh, making us dwelling places for himself. This is an ongoing creative work that's new. The old, old gospel is still the newest thing in the world. The God of ages is still doing new things, making new creations, saving souls. And as we prepare him room, he is preparing a place for us. And one day, these two dwelling places, your heart and his heaven, will be united. And John Newton, who's uh, most famous probably for a really, really good song he wrote called Amazing Grace, he said, A soul disengaged from the world is a heavenly one, and then we are ready for heaven when our heart is there before us. And it's this day when we go where our heart already is, when we are taken to the place where our treasure is that Jesus promises. And he's telling the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place and it's good. I'm doing a new thing. And in the second half of verse 3 in John 14, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming back. And of course, on the timing, the mechanics of all of this, there's disagreement within the church. I'm sure there always will be until it happens, then we figure it out. But the, this fact, this one fact, is indisputable. This belief is fundamental. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. He tells the disciples and he tells us, I am coming quickly. Watch, therefore. Now, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, uh, he addressed a concern that they had uh, where they were thinking that the saints who had died had missed Jesus. Um, you know, you got saved and then, then something happened and then you died and they're like, well, Jesus hasn't come back yet, so they missed it. They don't get to go to heaven. And Paul had to correct that, that line of thinking. He corrects this thinking and says in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain 
until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus promises, I am coming to take you home with me, and this promise is for you, and this promise is for those who have already died. They will rise with new bodies, resurrected bodies, by the one and to the one who says, Behold, I make things, I make all things new. And so the disciples seem to be getting some hope, and Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And this is the sixth of seven I am statements of Jesus. Each one declaring his deity, the great I am, and and saying something about his character and who he is, what he's like. Here he tells us three things about himself, that he is the way that we must know in order to get to heaven. He is the route, and there is no alternate route. He is the truth, ultimate reality. The scripture says, thy word is truth. And here Jesus is confirming the words of the Apostle John that he is the living incarnate word of the Father. He is the life. As John wrote in chapter 1, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And Paul would write in Colossians 1, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. He is the way, the truth, and the life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now all these things have already been said by Jesus in John. And Jesus says here, I am the way, but he's already told the crowds, I am the door of the sheep. And he's explained that anyone attempting to access the sheepfold by another route is a thief and a robber. He says here, I am the truth, but John has already said that he is the word of God, which is truth. Jesus has already testified, I speak of what I know and my authority is true. My, my, my statements are true. And Jesus has testified before the Pharisees, I speak of what I know. Yeah, I said that. He says, I am the life. And in the moments Leading up to the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus has said exactly the same thing to the sister of the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. He's summarizing the main points of his ministry from the past years and delivering the boiled down essence to the disciples right here. He says, I'm going to heaven and I'm preparing a way for you, but I am the way. I'm preparing a place for you, but I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And this essentially, um, this is really what sets Christ's message apart from most every other prophet or faith leader, uh, spiritual founder of a religion in history. Uh, you know, other great teachers or, or leaders might offer to show you the way, but they did not say that they were the only, only way. Buddha didn't, Dalai Lama doesn't, Muhammad didn't, Moses didn't, Jesus does. He says, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. I don't show you a way apart from me. I don't show you, I don't speak truth that's apart from me. There is no life apart from me. And this exclusive nature of the gospel must be the view we take. We do believe that without this way, we are all lost. Without this truth, all are in darkness. Without this life, all are dead. 
But there's the hope that I want you to hold on to today and into the new year is he's still giving life and he is still the way. He's still the truth. He's still the life. Psalm 119.90, it says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. All generations. And the way, the truth, and the life is still accessible to us this year. And this year, Jesus is going to save souls. And this year, Jesus is going to make new things in your heart. He's going he's gonna to create you into a dwelling place for, for himself and do a, a new thing. And we, we, we know that you know, his faithfulness endures to all generation, the, generations. And this is true in part because of the words of Lamentations 3 that says, you know, you, your mercies are new every morning. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. We sing that. And there, there's a paradox here of eternal newness and at the same time, this immovable constancy of our God. G.K. Chesterton has, has this to say on the matter, and it's one of my favorite quotes from his book, Orthodoxy. He says, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatically, automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. He makes all things new. What makes uh, th This makes sense in light of what Charles Spurgeon said in his sermon as quoted earlier. The old, old gospel is the newest thing in the world, and God never grows weary of sharing himself through these means. He never gets weary of saving people. He never gets tired of reaching people. And as we come to the one who makes all things new, we can know that as he matures us and he causes us to grow up into the fullness and the stature of Christ, he also makes us young again, where we can rejoice in the simplicities of the gospel again and again and again, in the simple truths of the, the hope of heaven and the beauty of Jesus. You know, it's a new year. Um, and tomorrow is a new day and the sun will rise just like every other day and next year February will follow January etc uh, in many ways it will be just the same but don't forget that each day is a day in which God is making things new he has made you new and and he he has people he wants to save and give new birth new life to he has a church that is living in the new covenant, and it's still new. It hasn't worn out yet. One where we have a new relationship with our God as sons and not servants, as family and friends. To rejoice in this newness of the old, old gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We thank you that you will make all things new. We, we anticipate the new heaven and the new earth that we haven't seen, but you have, and we can trust you. We, we trust you that it's, it's going to be glorious. God, until then, I pray that we would have um, 
a freshness about us, especially as we handle holy things. That we would not look on the beauties of salvation and your mercies, which are new every morning, as something worn out that we have to move past. But let us rejoice in these, these fresh new truths of the gospel. Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. Let us not look for a way anywhere else. Let us not believe anyone else. Let us not live in any other way except in you and for you. Bless your church, we ask in your name and for your glory. Amen.